The following Future Conceive podcast is sponsored by the Virtual Education Committee of the Society for the Study of Reproduction, with the mission to develop virtual programs that will aid in the education, highlighting the careers of society members, bringing technology updates and the latest scientific advancements in reproductive biology. Thank you for listening. Hi, my name is Humphrey Yao from the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences. And along with me is Kiana Miller, a master's student from the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. And today we have the honor to interview the recipient of 2021 SSR Verinda Mahesh New Investigator Award, Dr. Sue Hamoun. She's an assistant professor from the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Congratulations, Dr. Hamoud. For the listeners who don't know, the SSR New Investigator Award is an award given to an investigator who has published outstanding research in the last 12 years after completing their PhD. This award focuses on the future scientists of SSR working on new techniques, methods, and clinical procedures that are applicable in basic sciences, human and animal research, and assisted reproductive technology. Dr. Hamoud, could you tell us about yourself, where you grew up, and how you ended up where you are now? So first and foremost, I'd like to thank SSR and the uh, the committee at all for for this really um, incredible honor and humbling title for SS, uh, for the award. And so this has been a great pleasure to be part of the uh, society and, and large. And so um, I'll tell you a little bit about my background. I am Lebanese American. So my I'm first generation uh, American in the United States. My parents came here as immigrants. Um, and I was born and raised in Michigan, actually. So I'm back close to home and close to family, which is always nice. Um, And I did my undergrad at Wayne State University. And so growing up as an immigrant first generation um, child here in the US, you know, science is probably not the first thing that comes to mind because we don't have um, specialties like that in Lebanon where my parents grew up. And so this is not something we're totally accustomed on seeing on a day to day basis. And so when I was an undergrad, I was really focused on um, going to medical school because, you know, that's what at least one of the professions that's sort of acknowledged um, in the society at large. And so when I started research as an undergrad, I was, I fell in love with the idea of asking how does a system work and how do you dissect a process? And so with that, I was like, oh, maybe research is something I can do um, potentially as a career option. And so this is how it started. And actually one of the questions I was working on as an undergrad was sort of transgenerational inheritance without having the title transgenerational inheritance at the time. And so what we were doing as an undergrad, I was stressing prenatally pregnant rats with glucocorticoids and then looking at the risk of diabetes and hypertension in the next generation. And so to me, that was really fascinating that you could um, induce a stress in a mom and then that sort of that information is carried on to subsequent generations. 
And so with that in mind, that's really how I became um, fascinated by the question, how do you carry information from one generation to the next? And of course that led me to sperm and egg because that's the natural carriers of information from one generation to the next. And so it sort of led the way for my work in germ cells at large. That's amazing. So um, what inspired you to pursue a career in reproductive biology? Yeah, so it's primarily that, like, how do you carry information from one generation to the next? And what is the molecular nature of information that's carried? We know, you know, together, DNA sequence is a very important determinant of the next generation. That's sort of going to be a lot of definition comes from your genetic sequence, but there's a lot of factors that are not necessarily embedded in genetics that can be conveyed from one generation. And so that's really where um, I'm totally intrigued by. Um, how is this information propagated and what are the molecular carriers of epigenetic memory? And so by that quest, I really started, I went to University of Utah um, to work with uh, Brad Cairns and Doug Carroll. And so Brad Cairns is a chromatin remodeling person at the time in the field uh, before he was a germ cell uh, specialist. And then uh, Doug Carroll is more of a translational clinical um, andrology specialist in male reproduction. And so I joined their two groups. One of them was clinical and translational, and then the other one was very basic science. And during that time when I was in Doug's lab, um, he gave me an opportunity to go into the human IVF lab because they were short staffed and they needed somebody to help out do sperm preps. And so I was watching them do an ICSI procedure where they take sperm and inject it into an oocyte. And I'm like, how do you know which sperm to pick? They all look the same to me. It's like, well, you don't know which sperm is better than, you know, you know, you're just looking primarily for something that looks relatively normal. And so that to me was really fascinating, like how, how all sperm look the same, but they're not all equally competent. And so that, you know, began asking a question, what are the molecular differences in gametes and how do molecular differences really give rise to phenotypic differences and outcomes in reproductive technologies? And so really that was sort of the journey. Um, and in sperm at the time, it wasn't really thought that maybe sperm carry very much information to the dead. It was believed that, you know, yes, it's important to have half your genetic information and a few DNA methylation marks scattered throughout the genome that are going to like determine which genes are going to be expressed primarily from the dead early on in the embryo. Um, but really contribution of the dead was believed to be limited. Um, and so when I was a grad student, I started looking into the question, you know, can the dad provide information beyond the DNA sequence and beyond DNA methylation at a few imprinted loci that we know are fundamentally important for development? And so this is where we began looking at histones being remnants of these um, molecular carriers. Uh, can histones serve as molecular carriers of memory from one generation to the next in the dad? And so we started mapping where histones are retained in sperm and you know, serendipitously showed that histones are retained at developmental genes, which was really exciting because it provides a potential molecular mechanism for transgenerational inheritance. This is really exciting and it provides an opportunity to carry information, but that doesn't mean they actually physically carry the information themselves. And so when I started my lab, um, I was uh, really focused on understanding can histones truly convey information from one generation to the next. And so we've been working on developing mouse models to track paternal histones or maternal histones and seeing how long do they persist in the zygote and what kind of information do they carry. Um, and so this is really powerful because it allows you to visualize things at single molecule level and see, do they really 
are they passed on from one generation to the next? Um, but more importantly is that you have to understand how do you make sperm, right? Your end product is a fertilizable gamete or a gamete that's going to be reproductively competent, but then how do you actually go through this whole process from a stem cell to a mature sperm? And we stand, of course, the field stands on, on the shoulder of giants. There's so many amazing people in the field that have really um, led to a lot of our understanding of the detailed molecular mechanisms and pathways that are important, but there's still a lot that we don't know. And where I felt like technology would be powerful is leveraging a lot of these single molecule, single cell approaches to begin to unravel some fundamental questions that are really not easily accessible and in bulk sample analysis approaches and sort of my lab has been focused on how do you make a developmentally competent gamete? So what are the molecular pathways in vivo, both intrinsically and intrinsic, extrinsic that are important for germ cell development? And so with that, that sort of sums about the history and the direction of the yeah, lab. If, if I may follow that up in terms of scientific questions. So we know during spermatogenesis, histone is replaced by protamine. So how is this transformation transmitted to the next generation? So, but I do know not 100% of the histones are replaced by protamine. So those remaining histones are more, are, are the one that carry the message? Yeah, so that's a really good question. So the idea is, yeah, potentially carriers of memory are gonna be histones because we always think about histones as, you know, in a somatic cell, histone is, you know, correlated with gene expression, whether it, induces gene expression changes is, is hard to say, but you know, you have active histone modifications that correlate with gene expression. And so we always think about it right now, currently in the field that maybe it is histones that are carrying the information because protamines are believed to package the whole genome. And um, I think at this point, we don't have any strong data yet to suggest that protamines um, may not be instructive, but we also don't have data to support that they are not instructive. We know that they carry, um, they package the genome, but it doesn't mean that these proteins may not convey information. Um, and so that's something that we're definitely interested in, definitely exploring. Wow, what a whirlwind of a career. What are some challenges that you faced? Yeah, so I think yeah, as a woman in science, I think it's hard, right? Or a woman in general, um, two things you always think about is life work balance. Um, I don't know if there is such a thing, but you know, there is something that's called world life balance. And especially as a mom, you know, I think there's some things that you feel guilty about, like you're not there a lot of the times you miss certain events. And I think one thing that you come to realize as a woman in science, it's not really um, the quantity of time you put in, it's the quality of time you put in with your kids. And there's no perfect time for a family. Uh, every time is the right time. And so I think you just need to do it. And I think as women, you're like capable of like multitasking and I, you know, evolutionarily we're, de we're designed to like carry on and, and maintain a family. So I think you just learn to to weave the ropes. I mean, it's a lot harder, um, but there's a lot to juggle and that's something uh, that we all experience and we all have to go through. And it seems hard. And I think when you look back at it, though, it's, it's, it's nice. It's an experience that you actually get to go through. And um, it really defines you and it makes you more resilient and persistent. And I think in a way, it really helps me um, focus my day and know that I need to get certain things done because I need to check out at a certain time. And so I think it keeps me organized and keeps me on track. 
Um, so that's sort of, I think, one of the challenges of being a woman in science and then also being a partner, right? Because you're always a two-body problem. So it makes it a little bit harder um, when you're looking for jobs or moving from job to job, then, you, you know, there's another person that always needs to be in the equation. And so uh, you may not get to make the calls of certain decisions and where it happens because you need to be at a place where it's going to accommodate the family. And, you know, and there's, um, there's a lot more benefits. I think having a family really keeps you grounded and it keeps you supported. And I think it's, it's, it's a challenge, but at the same time, it's what keeps us going. So how do you and your lab cope with the COVID pandemic situation? Sorry, I have to go off the script, but we want to know how your lab deal with the the pandemic situation. Yeah. So the way we're like, we've done, of course, the university has regulations on, you know, restrictions on capacity and things like that. And um, I have natural early risers and late risers in the lab. So it's actually actually very, very natural. Some people like to come in at six o'clock in the morning and they love to leave early. Others like to come in at three o'clock in the afternoon and stay till midnight. So it was actually perfect. So like for the people that were not early risers, they had to transition into the later shift. Um, And of course, some people that have families, it was a lot harder for them to be in. And so their kids were at home. Um, but there's a lot to do other than bench work. So science is not only being on the bench, right? There's like intellectual development, there's computational work that you could do, just even designing experiments, right? Sometimes it's nice to take a step back and design what do you really want to do in the next two years of your life? And so it gives people the opportunity to like, you know, think back about what you're doing and what you want to do next and catching up on the literature, which I'm sure everybody's always behind on. So I think that's sort of what we did um, to begin with. And then of course, just trying to get by um, being safe and healthy. I think that's the most important thing eventually. Well, thanks for sharing. And looking at your CV, it seems to be everything works so well for you. But I'm pretty sure behind that, there are so many up and down. So if you were to start over again, what would you do or choose differently? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, It's not as bright and it's not as easy the path. So I could tell you that there's definitely you always get rejections. But you learn and you you build a thick skin and you learn and you move on. And I think if you don't have rejections, you're not going to grow because then, you know, you don't know what you're doing wrong and you can't be doing everything right all the time. So I think that's one thing. If I were, I don't think there's a perfect path. There's no one path that's going to lead you to success in science or going to take you in, in one direction or another. I feel like there's many paths that you would take. So would I change a path? Probably not. I would, you know, I think it's, it's hard to say, you know, like the experiences that you go through is what defines you and sort of shapes the future that you're in. And it's hard to say, and there's no perfect route. So I don't know if there is an alternative route, but I think one thing that I would have wished, I think as a, an undergrad, um, appreciated more a little bit like living in the moment, right? As when you're younger, you always want to be like, what's going to happen in 10 years? Am I going to get a job? Am I going to be a faculty physician? Am I like going to do something in my life meaningful? Um, but I think live the moment. And I think that's really hard because the moment that passes, it's in the past and that's something you can't control. So just cherish every minute you have and every experience you have or interaction with a human you have, because that's going to become something in the past and that's not going to be controlled. Um, 
yeah, I think that's the one thing, but I don't think there's quite a defined route. I mean, maybe I'll be a biophysics or something instead of a biologist, but I don't know if it's going to change much. <laughs> yeah. I think something that COVID taught me was definitely to live in the moment and just understand that like nothing is promised. And I think a lot of people that came in the same year with me, we all freaked out because our schedule, of course, had been completely transformed. A lot of us who came in the fall of 2019 are now being backed up because we had maybe like a semester and a summer of not being able to work in the lab. And so now we're all graduating at these um, non-convenient times on our schedule, but of course there's a bigger plan. And at the end of the day, as long as you're graduating at some point and moving on and figuring out your life, that's okay, you'll get it together. But so since I am a trainee member, a bunch of us are always wondering, what advice do you have for us? What are some takeaways that we can get from you? So I think one thing that's really important as a, when I was a trainee and, and I really um, thought about is, you know, really when going into grad school or leaving into leaving, like going into grad school, I think some of the most important questions I thought about is what kind of mentor do I want to have? You know, what kind of mentor, um, you know, if I think about how do I work best, you know, who's going to support me uh, and, you know, a mentor is not somebody that's going to be with you for five years. Yes, your PhD training spans, you know, four to five years and you're on to bigger and better things. But your mentor is like your lifetime support, right? It's like a lifetime marriage, almost commitment that you have to take with this person. Um, and and you want to find somebody that really cares about you and really cares about your success and what you need to achieve in your life, right? So I think having that kind of information, but also you need to be aware what kind of mentoring style suits you best as an individual. So you need to know, like, do I need somebody that's going to hold my hand? And that's okay. You know, different people, people grow at different rates and, you know, people have different styles they're, they're interested in. And so maybe that's something that you might want to consider, or do you want a mentor that's going to be totally hands off, you know, and not be involved in your day-to-day -day activity and they're going to be important in shaping and that, that works well too. It just really depends on the type of personality you are as, as a student and as how much instruction do you need as a student. In both cases though, I think what's really important is that this person should not be able to suppress your creativity, regardless whether you need a lot of handholding or no handholding, you should have the opportunity to express your thoughts and express your creativity and take ownership of your own project and drive it the direction you want to take it, of course, within the realms of the lab that they're comfortable with. But I think, you know, allowing you to exercise that independence, I think is something that's truly remarkable. And that's something I remember as a grad student, when I was in Brad's lab, I went up to him and I said, I want to study sperm and I want to study sperm chromatin. And he just laughed. I remember he's like sperm. I'm a yeast geneticist. Like, I'm like, I could get you sperm from my husband's clinic. And he started <laughs> laughing, you know? So I think, you know, giving you that space and giving you the opportunity to explore new directions, you never know where it takes you. But I think having that intellectual freedom uh, and fostering the intellectual creativity that you have, I think is really important in a mentor. And I think one other important thing that I've learned is that um, without failure, there's no success. And so I think what's really important to realize is that failure doesn't define you. So if you get a grant rejection, it's not, you're not good. Um, you're, you're just the same person, right? It's, it's not going to change who you are or what you can or your potential be. 
um, or a paper gets rejected, it's the same exact thing. It's, it doesn't really define you as an individual. And without these failures, you really don't learn. And I think that's going to be really important. I think those are like some of the two key points that I tell people and time is relative, right? An extra month in COVID in the grand scheme of things, I hope everybody lives up to a hundred years, one month or two months or six months is not going to mean anything in a hundred years. So, yeah. Uh, that's very enlightening. Thank you for sharing your words of wisdom and letting us know more about you. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, listeners, I hope everyone took note, trainees and investigators alike, because many great things were said on this interview. Once again, Dr. Hamoud, congratulations on winning the SSR New Investigator Award. Everyone, this is Kiana Miller and Humphrey Yao signing off. Have a great week. Stay safe and remember, the future is conceived at SSR. Thanks for listening, everyone. This music is produced by Buckles and the Peripel.